welcome to the Best Self Podcast. Today, we've got Ultra Tim Davis with us today. We're so excited. This guy has an incredible story. Uh, if you like the story of redemption, you're going to love, love our conversation today. If you're into education, you're going to love our conversation today. And uh, if you're into the success road, incredible. Uh, Tim has... Uh, has quite uh, had quite the traumatic childhood, and then uh, he transformed himself through a bunch of stuff that we'll talk about uh, into an educator, into a 12-time uh, Ironman triathlon guy, and one on a double uh, Ironman, if I remember correctly. Once he's yeah. run seven 100-mile endurance. Uh, competitions, I believe, and <laughs> competing against your best self, I guess. And then uh, most impressively, this guy's tied the world record 365 consecutive days. Any idea what that would be there, Big Dog? Uh, uh, no, actually, <laughs> no, <laughs> staying alive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I read the world record for sobriety is 24 oh. hours. Oh, yeah, yeah. 365 days consecutive. You're killing it. Actually, it's 13 and a half years, so Ooh. however many that is. <laughs> yeah, beast mode. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, world record is 24 hours, so 24 hours a day. That's all we got is one day at a time. That's right. That's right. Awesome. Well, I know you've you've probably beat this to beat this down a million times you know people always want to hear your story uh i've heard your story and it's incredible but i do think it's kind of important to set the stage for everything we're going to talk about today to kind of lead people along your journey and maybe start with your childhood and work your way to where you're at now all right um well first of all thanks for having me on the show and uh thanks for the wonderful intro um my story um i'm the third oldest of seven kids um big catholic family and uh, we were kind of, our, our family is kind of like the tale of uh, two, two different lives, you know, uh, growing up uh, until age 13, you know, we were a pretty uh, average middle, middle income family. Um, and then at age 13, my dad um, had a tragic accident, fell off the balcony at our house while he was playing chase with me. And uh, my older brother blamed me for his death. Um, and that really, that was the trauma that you talked about, you know, yeah. at age 13, thinking it was my fault that I, I killed, you know, that my father died because of me. Right. Um, I certainly didn't kill him. Right. <laughs> it took me a long time, years of therapy. Uh, you know, well, you, you know my story, you know, yeah. I, I kind of went into drug addiction and alcoholism for many years um, before I got sober and, and did years of therapy to realize that it wasn't my fault, you know, and that was kind of one of the, the big reasons that I, that I drank and used is because I, I did not know how to cope with that. I didn't have any coping right. mechanisms. Right. And at the time, my mom, you know, she had to go back to work and figure out how to support all seven of us kids. And uh, she was working so much that she was barely around. Right. Um, my relationship with her before my dad died was like, you know, my brother and sisters called me the favorite because I got the best grades and I was, you know, a really good student. And, uh, you know, and she was always there to answer my questions, help me out. After my dad died, she was working all the time. And me and my three older brothers and sisters, we were all either in high school or just starting college, whereas my three little brothers were two, three, and five. So they demanded all of her time and attention when she right. wasn't working because, you know, they're 
little kids are a lot more sure. high maintenance than the older <laughs> kids who are more self-sufficient. Yeah. Um, and so it was more of a high buy business relationship with my mom after that, you know, so, so for us older ones, it was kind of like we lost our mom in, in a lot of ways, a lot of respects because, you know, that closeness and being able to talk to her about anything kind of went away and it was just like, you know, did you do your homework? Did you do your chores? Okay, great. You know, and then she was just on to, on to her right. things and distracted right. with my little brothers and just tired from working all the time, you know, and she, she just never seemed like the same person. And uh, so that was that, you know, and I got through, you know, high school and went out to college. And uh, when I went off to college, you know, I, I only applied to two colleges. I grew up in West Virginia. So I applied to West Virginia University and then I applied to USC because my mom and my older sister mm. talked me into it. Yeah. And, uh, my girlfriend dumped me on my 18th birthday. So that was kind of like the deciding factor. I'm like, I'm getting the hell out of Dodge. Gone. <laughs> <laughs> and I also thought that I was going to, you know, start on this new sober path out in college. Um, ah. Little did, little did I know <laughs> what college was going to be like. That, that lasted three days. Yeah. So college was a blur, but I somehow still managed to get a 3.3. And, you know, I graduated with a degree in exercise science. And I met my wife to be my freshman year. And we dated pretty much all through college. You know, we started dating at the end of the year. And uh, she has stuck with me through thick and thin. We've been together yeah. 27 years, married 23 years. And uh, I put her through the ringer when I was really deep and dark in my alcoholism addiction and through my 20s, especially my later 20s, when I started doing more hardcore illicit drugs because kind of the alcohol and marijuana had stopped working as far as what I was self-medicating with. And so I started doing cocaine and methamphetamine and things got really bad, you know, I'm, and I, I tried to get sober and I relapsed multiple times with the several rehabs. You know, my wife started going to the Al-Anon family groups, you know, and started setting boundaries, which, you know, they learn, they teach you, you know, Al-Anon's, you know, they, they teach them how to do better self-care because they're not very good at that. Right. Um, and uh, so she started setting boundaries. Like, if you can't stay sober, you can't live in the house, you know, and right. when I would relapse, I would choose to live out of my car and basically be homeless, you know, for sometimes two or three months at a time. Uh, and, you know, I, I was a school teacher, you know, so a lot of times it happened during the summer and I would just call it my, my urban summer vacation, you know, and yeah. I would park at different city parks or, you know, wow. local state parks and just camp yeah. and just, you know, I was just being a bum. It's just really right. bad. Then I finally got sober once uh, I had a sponsor who basically impressed upon me that, you know, I've got, you know, alcoholism and addiction is disease that wants to kill us. Um, it's, you know, chronic progressive and fatal that's you know i learned that in rehab the only three criteria that anything in the world health organization the american medical association for something to be classified as a disease it just needs to meet those three criteria it's got to be progressive chronic and fatal and when they impress that education upon me i'm like okay this is a disease it's not just mental weakness you know I, you know it's just like diabetes or cancer and i got to treat it you know my sponsor impressed upon me really that it could kill me he's like he had this talk with me after one of my last relapse. I think it was my last relapse. He's like, you know what? You can go die from this disease just like your dad did, you know, because my dad was drunk when he fell off the balcony. He's like, and your wife and your kids will be sad, you know, because I had two little boys at the time. She's like, but you're eventually, she'll replace you. She'll find another man to be her husband and the father of your children. And that just kind of lit a fire under me. Right. And I was like, nobody's going to replace me. You know, I'm right. not going to do the same thing to my kids, you know, kind of happened with my dad and, you know, me and my brothers and sisters. So that's when I, I made a commitment to, you know, really work the 12 steps. And, and I made a private deal with God and myself that if I worked all 12 steps and I still wanted to drink and do drugs after that, then I was going to. Right. But lo and behold, you know, in the big book in the 12 step program, they talk about the promises. And I want, you know, some of the promises are that we'll be amazed before we're halfway through and that the obsession to drink and use will be lifted. And luckily for me, I worked those steps earnestly this time. And, you know, the obsession was lifted. And, you know, God willing, I haven't taken a drink or drug since June 15th, 2007, the day after my 33rd birthday. And I'm 46 years old now, so one, at, one day at a time, I've been doing that world record for sobriety for 13 and a half years, and uh, 
over the last 13 and a half years, like I've done all these other things that I had no idea of doing. I mean, at that time, I just wanted to stay sober and just be a good husband and father. But in sobriety, I, I got a master's degree. Um, I started racing triathlons, like you said. Yeah. Um, I found that exercise was very critical for my mental health because I was also diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Right. And, uh, you know, taking my psycho my psych meds, going to 12-step meetings was kind of helping with my mental and my spiritual aspect, but I still just had this kind of manic energy being bipolar. And I found that a regular exercise routine, you know, was the, like the third and missing piece for what I needed to do to, to be my best self and take care of my mind, body, and spirit. Right. And that's kind of the formula that's worked for me for a long time. And that's what I still do today. Love it. Love it. Yeah. That is, that is an awesome story. Um, do you mind sharing what, what were some of the illicit drugs that you kind of got into? Yeah, well, it was mainly alcohol and weed. Like I had my okay. first drink when I was eight years old and then my first um, weed when I was nine because okay. my older brother, he was four years older than me. And, you know, he was getting into stuff when he was in junior high right. and uh, he just let me do whatever he did. And, right. you know, growing up in West Virginia, it's not like here in Southern California. There's not much to do. Hunt, fish, go to the lake, you know, in the summer. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so people get, you know, start young. And, you know, we yep. had some friends who had dads that just let us hang around and drink with them. You know, it's like, it was a gotcha. different time back in the late 70s, early sure. 80s. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, we would just go to their friend's dad's house that would let us drink. You know, we were still looking for my dad's liquor cabinet, you know, and it was mostly that, you know, hallucinogens a little bit, a couple of times in high school and college, but after college, yeah, that's when uh, a couple of years after college, when like, just seemed like marijuana didn't get me high enough anymore to kind of, right. I just escape reality and get yep. that euphoria and just, you know, yep. kind of use it as a coping thing or whatever. Right. So that's when I started using cocaine for a while, but yeah. uh, that didn't last very long before I really ran up a lot of debt because cocaine's expensive. Very. Yeah. Uh, which is when I converted to being a methamphetamine user. And uh, that one is just, uh, methamphetamine is just such a horrible, horrible Rough. drug. I mean, I had like two or three periods where I maybe did it for like three to six months, but then I was just off the rails and just, you know, things yep. were really dark and ugly. Well, and, that adds up fast. Yeah, nobody wanted me to be around them because yep. I had sticky fingers to support my habit, if right. you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, people had, you know, a lot of people in my family, my wife included, uh, and some of her, you know, some of my direct family and some of my in-laws had these property restraining orders on me. I was never yeah. a violent person, but I was just a thief to support my habit. So yeah. a property restraining order is right. when they don't want you around because they can't trust you not to right. you know, steal their checkbook or jewelry sure. or whatever, you know, so yeah. I'm glad to say that I've, you know, I've gone through all 12 steps and nine step is making amends and I've, I've made amends for all those things that I, you know, did wrong to different people in my family. I paid them all back. So sure. Yeah, no, I get it. My, I have family that uh, hasn't done your exact path, but I have family. I have, I have a family member that was a meth dealer and, and I know the stuff. And, and I used to have, uh, when I used to teach in a classroom, I would have people from the meth project come in and speak to my students. And, you know, the stories, those days were the most impactful days of the entire semester every every semester they were the most impactful days because you would hear their stories a lot of them were similar but different you know they were in different places and whatnot but you know they all they all talked about there's nothing you won't do for that next high yeah and and some of these i mean i have one i can call her friend she she's never as you i'm sure know like people when they use meth they start losing their dopamine levels. Yes. And so I have a friend who uh, I actually I taught her daughter and her daughter got married, had a, has had kids, all this stuff. And she feels nothing. 
She mm. feels nothing. She couldn't get happy for her, her daughter's wedding. She can't get happy when she sees anybody smile. Like she literally, and she's gone through testing. And I think she actually ran through something through USC, a, yeah. a, a research project to try to get all that stuff back. And so, yeah, that's an, that's an ugly drug. Yeah, how long has she been sober? I would think that those would start to replenish after a while if she's been Years. sober. Wow. She's, she's dead empty. Nothing's coming back. Wow, yeah. that's horrible. Yeah. So, um, but, you know, moving forward, talking about your, 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 you're talking about how exercise is kind of your juice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> kind of keeps you on the, on the straight and narrow now. I was thinking about this, like when I was in college, so I was a college athlete and back then they, they don't do it so much now like wall sits, but back then we would, we would get tested on how long we could do wall sits. I went, I went 90 minutes one time just in the wall sit position. We couldn't wipe the sweat off our face or anything. So sweat's going into our eyes, uh, rough. But I remember when I did those, a lot of it was between the ears. Like we could get to a certain point and it almost, I was trying to think of how I could describe this. I don't think my legs went numb, but it stopped hurting as much. It's kind of like getting in an ice bath. If you've ever gotten an ice bath, yes. the first four or five minutes is not fun. Yeah. But then you get beyond that and you're able to last a while. Would you describe that kind of the same way with your, when you're doing your Ironmans? I mean, those are grueling, tough how do you train your brain? Like, how do you train mental hygiene and mental toughness to get through something like that? Yeah, I would describe it exactly as that. You know, you, it, doing the 90-minute wall sit, that, I mean, when you tell me about that, that sounds like something I'm like, I don't even know if I could do that. That sounds intense. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure if I put my mind to it, because, you know, in these endurance sports, it's really mind over matter. It's, it's, yeah. it's so much. I mean, some people say it's 90% mental. I think it's 100% mental. Because you could train your body and, and you just, like, I don't know if you listen to David Goggins, but he's a little intense, yeah. but you know, he, he does promote that, you know, people have no idea how much their body can do, you know, and they just haven't tapped into their mind power. And, right. you know, I've, I've read lots of different people like Marshall Ulrich, famous ultra runner, he's run Badwater lots of times. He's an adventure racer now. He was, you know, just seen on, uh, he's a you know, older guy now, but he was on that Eco Challenge BG series that was on Amazon Prime mm-hmm. or is on Amazon Prime. And he has in his book, uh, Running on Empty, he has a uh, Marshall's Law. And it's like his 10 laws of like kind of how to train your mind to uh, just get through endurance events, you know, and I don't remember all 10 of them, but you know, one of them is like, know that there's an end, you know, and it's just all self-talk, you know, like this, yes. this too shall pass, you know, right. And it's a journey, not a destination. It's just yes. all these things you tell yourself, you know, you just got to like remembering your why, you know, it's yes. just all these things you just Great do, stuff. you know, like I just did a 50 K Saturday, you know, and, mm. yeah, and, and sometimes I've been racing for so long, you know, sometimes I'll be, the whole race, I'm just loving it. You know, other times I'm five miles into a race and I'm like, why am I doing this? I did one <laughs> Ironman where I was like, the whole race, it was just like an, a mind battle, you know? And other times I'm like, man, I'm, you know, like the race Saturday was great because like the last race of the year, it was a real race. I mean, there was only 28 people in it, but still it's like, and this pandemic, I've only been able to do a couple of real races because yeah. everything's been shut down. So it's just like, I'm ending the 2020 race season with a real race, very excited. You know, it's pumped up pretty much the whole way. So it just depends where your mind's at, but you got to, got to be able to self-talk and stay in positive self-talk. Right. I, I love that you bring that up. Uh, you're also an educator. And uh, do you feel like 
any of these lessons, like we're, we're talking about like mental toughness and mental hygiene and, and self-talk and stuff like that. How do you take the lessons you've learned from your life and from your trials running and, and all that jazz? How do you take those and put it into the classroom? Like how do you, you're with high school kids. How do you translate that? I think um, the most important thing I do is lead by example. And, you know, I'm a creature of habit now. Um, you know, like, like I said, in my years when I couldn't stay sober, um, I was basically a really dysfunctional person. Um, in sobriety, I've had the same job for the last 13 years. Before I got sober, I never had the same job for more than two years. I just, I suit up, I show up, you know, every day I start the class with, you know, here's the agenda. You know, now we're going to do a warm up and we're going to think about this question. We're going to get into groups. We're going to pair and share about it. And I just right. have the same routines and I have the same expectations for all my students. And, you know, I have some posters. I'm like, what? I'm not in my classroom now, but, you know, posters of me finishing an Ironman. It's, you know, I finished a hundred mile endurance run. Mm -hmm. and I'm like, this is what I'm about. You know, and it's just like, never give up. Don't quit. You know, even if you have a D right now and there's only five weeks left to go, you could still turn in some late work and do some extra credit and pull that back up, pull it back up to a B or a C right. and maybe even an A if you really, you know, put in a lot of work, you know, so I'm like, I'm, I just try to promote that to them and encourage them all the way through, you know, and just kind of lead by example and, and kind of be like a coach to them in a way, you know, as far as sure, sure. encouraging them to get good grades. Right. I mean, how important is it to be growth minded? It's extremely important. Now, and, and uh, I love the whole growth mindset thing. We just uh, kind of started adopting that like three or four years ago. And before that, you know, I didn't realize that um, in my own life, you know, with regard to being a teacher, especially, and some other is, I, I was kind of closed mindset, you know, I kind of had this, uh, I guess, mentality that, you know, in some ways, people don't change, or things just have to be one way. And uh, I went through these growth mindset trainings, and I'm like, wow, you know, anybody can change, you know, things don't always have to be one way. A lot of times, there's, you know, multiple solutions to one problem. And it just, uh, right. you know, it taught me different ways to be more empathetic as a teacher, um, mm. and to help move my kids along, you know, like, awesome. and a big thing they did with um, LAUSD is like, you know, before that, so many teachers would never accept late work. And, uh, and we, we read this article called The Case for Zero. And it talks about how you grade assignments. And, you know, the, the traditional grade scale is 90 to 100 was an A. And, you know, 80 to 90 was a B and so on. But everything 0 to 60 is fail. And they're like, on a scale of 0 to 100, 60, the 60% 60 of it's going to be an automatic fail. So we kind of got on this new grade scale where now 80 to 100 is an A. And 60 to 80 is a B and 40 to 60 is a C, and 20 to 40 is a D, and then below 20, zero to 20 is an F. Interesting. And that kind of makes more sense when you think about, you know, in elementary school, they grade them on a, basically a scale of one, two, three, four, five. Yeah. So why did we change that going from high school to college? So right. we're doing that more. So it gives more students a chance to pass, even if they're kind of, you know, in the low 20s and 30s, they're, you know, 40s, they're still getting a C or a D. So, right. I, so I'm doing all that kind of stuff. And that's all growth mindset for me, because for my first 15 years as a teacher, I was just on that straight scale that I was taught in high school and college. Right. Sure. Do you think uh, being empathetic uh, has made you a little more big picture thinker guy, a little more giving you a little more perspective? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, you know, especially, um, you know, in the last year and a half since I, I'm shameless plug here, since I wrote my book, <laughs> yeah. it made me really think about, you know, where I am at life and what I want to do with my life. Cause I've been a teacher 20 years now and, uh, I don't have the same fire, fuel, and passion for it as I used to, so I'm kind of looking for, you know, career changes, but I didn't know where I wanted to go with that. I didn't know I wanted to write a book, 
Um, so I'm kind of just, uh, you know, during this pandemic, I released the book in the middle of a pandemic. So I'm doing this virtual book tour where I'm going all these podcasts and, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, I don't know where it's going to take me, but I'm meeting all kinds of cool people like you, you know, I've been on about 20 podcasts now and, uh, I'm just networking and, uh, you know, considering options, you know, maybe doing speaking and coaching and just seeing where it's going to take me and, uh, still teaching in the meantime. And just trying to incorporate everything I'm learning from all the, the cool hosts like you, you know, with your positive warrior shirt. I love that oh. shirt. I want to give you one of those. Thanks, man. Uh, it takes the focus off my face, which is <laughs> generally a perk for everybody. Yeah, my, <laughs> I agree. I needed the same thing for me. <laughs> uh, uh, I noticed that you're, I mean, you're a little hair challenged up there. If, if, you, could, uh, if you could grow more hair, what kind of hairdo would we be looking at here? Uh, maybe something like Brad Pitt in a fight club, you know? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I like that dude. Nice. <laughs> hey, let's stay on your book. Uh, okay. I love, I love that you have your, I'm a list guy. I love lists. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I take people's lists and I, I incorporate them into my own and, and I just, I just love it. And you have a top 10 list in there for life skills, I believe. And I wrote down a few of my favorites, uh, your first one, number one, is reflect and define. Yes. Uh, you talk about setting goals. Mm -hmm. Love it. How could, because a lot of people set goals, like this is the time of year, you know, between now and the middle of January, fitness clubs are going to get rocking and people are going to set all these New Year's resolutions. But then six weeks later, yep. fitness clubs are going to be half empty again and, yep. <laughs> you know, whatever. How do we get people, I don't know if you have a theory on this, how do we get people to change their habits that lead to their goals? Like, do you have a theory on, or a, or a method to your madness? Like how, if I want to set a goal, if I'm a person, if I'm a listener here uh -huh. in Jar Argentina right now, and yeah. I have this goal to do this, yeah. what are some habits that I need to change to follow through and be a finisher? I think, uh, well, wow, that's such a great question. As far as setting the goals, um, I believe in SMART goals, if you're familiar with those, mm -hmm. you know, specific, measurable, attainable. I forget the R right now on the T. Realistic. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, realistic. That, that leads me to my next thing is like, if you have a big goal in mind, but it's like maybe you weigh 300 pounds and you want to do an Ironman one day. I think your first goal would be like, well, I want to get down to like maybe 280 or, you know, and just like and maybe set like within six months, I want to lose 20 pounds because you can't lose, you know, 20 pounds in a day or a right. week, you know, in a healthy way. Right. Um, so you got to, you know, set incremental goals that you're going to reach towards your big goal. So kind of taking baby steps. Right. Um, and the other thing that I started doing when I got serious, because I used to weigh 250 pounds in 2009, right. when I just started, you know, writing down everything, like you said, keeping lists, I would write down every workout I did every day, you know, like three mile jog. Uh, even 20 minutes of playing racquetball, uh, walking around the block, which was 0.5 miles, you know, and just right. everything I wrote it down. I still do that today. Right. <laughs> I, I, now I keep it all on Strava, but <laughs> <laughs> especially during the pandemic, I just, you know, it's keep it. I, and I do have an Excel spread, well, Google Sheet spreadsheet that I keep it on too. Sure. Yeah, that leads, that, and that's number three. You record, your number yeah. three of the that list is recording. Have you ever, you could, like empathy is a big buzzword right now, but you don't see a lot of people writing down empathetic goals, or you don't see a lot of companies taking empathy into account when they're doing hiring or, yeah. Uh, 
I don't know if this is even a question or me just thinking out loud. I, I don't, it doesn't feel like a lot of people do gratitude journals or yeah. empathetic journals or have you ever thought about, I mean, you just seem like the type of guy, like we talked about self-talk earlier. Mm-hmm. Have you ever thought about having like a self-talk journal and stuff uh-huh. as in addition to writing down your, your running and your times and your miles? Um, you know, I love that you say that because you're just getting my, my wheels spinning. I do do gratitude journals, but I don't do self-talk journals. And one of the things for me being bipolar that I struggle with is I still am a victim of a lot of negative self-talk. Mm. Um, and uh, I, I have to, you know, what I've learned through 12 steps and therapy is when, when that negative thinker gets going, I got to start taking contrary action and, and start getting into the positive. Um, and one of the number one things I do is like, just think about things I'm grateful for. And I'll usually write down a list of at least three to five, usually five to 10 things that I'm grateful for. And that helps kind of reset me and get me back into a more positive mindset and positive self-talk. Right. Yeah, that's cool. So in other words, uh, maybe listen to yourself less and talk to yourself more. Yeah. 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 So it's like prayer and meditation. I learned in uh, the program that uh, the difference between prayer and meditation, prayer is talking to God. Meditation is listening to God. Ooh. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. That's a gem right there. So sometimes we need prayer, you know, cause we got to talk to God and hash things out, but other times we need to sit back and listen and just, you know, sometimes the best action is to take no action until you're really sure about what the action is. hundred percent. That is really good. That's, that's a gold nugget right there, buddy. Um, I love number four. We'll just cover a few more here that I'm kicking you loose. All right. Yeah. Nation. You gotta um, help me remember them. I don't have a memorized. No, I, I got them in front of me. So. I got them. Yeah. Uh, I, I, my goal when I came into this thing is to make you feel as uncomfortable as possible and make it about me. How am I All doing? Right. You're doing great. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, so you talk about change, and and with your number four, and I, 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 this was my favorite one probably because it felt like you were talking about process. Yes, I and, remember now. <laughs> Uh, would you say I, I, while I was brainstorming this stuff, would you say that the process of self-awareness or the process of battling fatigue is more challenging? Um, I would say self-awareness for me, cause I kind of like being, um, in a state of fatigue, <laughs> being an endurance athlete. Um, but okay. staying self-aware is, I think, much more challenging for most people, unless you like meditate a lot, yeah. you know, and I don't meditate as much as I need to. I right. do spend some time meditating each day, but it's not more than 10 or 20 minutes. And I think right. really to become enlightened and self-aware, I know that I should probably put more like a half hour to an hour into it. So there are, you know, one area where I could grow. Sure. But as far as a state of fatigue, I'm, I, I kind of, I love being in a state of fatigue. So <laughs> you're talking to the wrong guy on that one. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Self-aware. The crazy part about self-aware is that a lot of people think they're, they think they are self-aware. I mean, I I think I read a study where 80 to 85% of people believe that they're self-aware, but only 80% of those people are actually self-aware. Yeah. So It feels like that in itself is a challenge to get people to realize that they do have a higher ceiling that, that brick wall is really a thin sheet of paper they can break through, or maybe they don't realize how negative they are. 
yeah. or the impact they're having on other people or, you know, that kind of stuff. You're big on consistency too. That was number seven. And yeah. we kind of touched on that earlier. What, what drives your engine? How do you, how do you stay cons- so consistent with that? Cause the 12 step program, I mean, going as long as you have setting, you know, 365 every day you roll out of bed, starting that recovery process over again. How have you managed to do that? Um, well, I guess it all started with the, when I really wanted to get sober, I just said a real simple prayer, which I still say every day, which is God, please don't let me forget how bad it could get. That's mm-hmm. it. Cause every time I relapsed, it got worse. And I just mm-hmm. like, as long as I remember how bad it gets, if I take one drink or drug, you know, all bets are off and it's not going to just be one drink or, you know, one right. beer, it's going to be, you know, a 12 pack and then off to the drug dealer's house yep. you know, and I'll find them. You can find them anywhere. And now that marijuana is legal, I don't even have to go, you know, do some shady deal on the street. You know, <laughs> when they yeah. first made marijuana legal, I was a little upset. I'm like, wow, because that was my drug of choice. They're making things easier. But, you know, I just I have a tape player. They talk about having a tape player and I just mm. play the whole tape all the way through because I know for me, you know, one drink or one drug and all bets are off and things are going to get real bad real quick. And yep. I just remind myself that every day. So the simple prayer, just please don't let me forget how bad it can get. That keeps me focused. And uh, I know, you know, I don't want to lose my family and I don't want to lose right. my job and I don't want to become a dysfunctional person again. I want to continue to be a productive member of society for however much time God has left for me on this planet. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can wake up every morning blessed or you can wake up every morning stressed. Yeah. And man, when you jump on that negative train, uh, it's hard to get off of it. Kind yeah. of, I mean, you're, you're talking about using, you know, smoking one bowl or having one drink or stuff like that. But the same holds true, you know, whether you're a CEO for a large corporation or, or high school science teacher, uh, same holds true for just between the ears in general, right? I mean, if you're yeah. on that negative train, the, it's really hard to get off of it. So, uh, well, speaking, you know, keeping on the topic of tripolar, what are, what's your, what would you say your favorite chapter in that book is and, and why? All right. Uh, I would probably say, people have asked me this a few times, it's hard to pick. Um, but my favorite one, I think, is called Becoming Tripolar. Um, and for me, the essence of what that chapter about is where I really, I think, became self-aware of what I needed to do for me to stay in, grounded and keep a strong foundation in my recovery program um, to take care of my mind, body, and spirit. You know, And it's when I realized that not only do I need to, you know, see my psychiatrist regularly and stay med compliant with my bipolar medications and continue to be a learner and stay educated um, and work the 12 steps to stay in recovery. But I, it was learning that I needed the regular exercise. It was like, you know, exercise for me was the best medicine because sometimes I couldn't always get to a 12 step meeting when I felt like maybe I might, you know, when I used to have urges to drink or use. And, you know, sometimes the meds alone are just not enough to manage it. But, you know, the regular exercise was like the piece, you know, so it was like the one, two, three, you know, doing these three things, you know, you know, and and for me becoming a triathlete, you know, it's when I realized that I was tripolar, the bipolar triathlete and just that awareness of what I needed to do for me to stay grounded. Love it. Uh, How how did it make, how does it make you feel when people say they don't have time? (laughs) I just don't have time. I'm too busy. Uh, that just makes me chuckle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you really want something, you will find time for it. You know, when I was training for that double Ironman, I was waking up at 4am and doing a two hour workout in the morning. And then I was, you know, on my stationary bike from sometimes from 6pm to 10pm or from 10pm to 2am, 
you know, binge watching Netflix and just spinning away on my, you know, tri bike on my, my trainer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, Hey buddy, you got, uh, you've got 30 to 45 seconds to talk to our listeners about how can they out improve their previous best self? 30 to 45 seconds. How can they out improve their previous best self? Um, I think the best thing you can do to out improve your previous best self is just know that you need to be a lifelong learner. You got to have that growth mindset, no matter how how much you are on the top of your game, there's always room for growth. Even Michael Jordan thought he could get better every day. So just always know you're, no matter how good you are, you're never at the top. There's always room for improvement somewhere. So look for where you can improve. Amen. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> Before we cut you loose, what are the best ways people can get a hold of you? Maybe best ways to get a hold of your book. Uh, best ways are um, if you search Tripolar Tim Davis, it's like the first thing that pops up. Or you can go to my website, ultratimdavis.com. And uh, it's available on Amazon, Apple Books, uh, Book Depository, Barnes and Nobles, Indie Books, a bunch of them. There's a whole list on my website. And it's available in paperback, uh, ebook, and Kindle, and audiobook for people like me who uh, like to run or bike for a long time. And you can just listen and read at the same time. Kill two birds with one stone. Amen so. to that, baby. Well, hey, man, I, I know you're a busy guy, challenging times for education. And yeah. so I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time and, and hanging out with us a little bit. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me on the show. It's great. I want to get one of those shirts. Yes, cool <laughs> beans. We'll send you some. All right, cool. All right, make it a great day, buddy. All right, you too.